you know, it's just, I grew up, I always tell people I grew up pretty unique. I, I literally grew up with a fishing rod in my hand and I was surrounded by really, really good people in the fishing world. Um, and kind of fell into a career and into it. I mean, it just kind of fell into it. Fish Stories! Fish Stories! Fish Stories! Sharing fish stories is best when you, when you have somebody who has been there been there with you. Fish stories. There could be a variety of reasons that Charlie Moore's name and voice might sound familiar to you. He's been involved in the fishing industry his entire life. His father, Louis Moore, lives in Texas now, but was once one of the legendary walleye guides from South Dakota's Missouri River. Back in that day, Louis's friends were around all the time, and they were no ordinary friends. You know, growing up, you know, if I wanted to know what's going on with the river, and I'd run down to the Holiday Inn, and Bob Props would be sitting there, and I'd, hey, Bob, what's going on? And I'm 14 years old. Well, Charlie, we're doing this, this, and this, and this, and okay, see you later. Um, it wasn't until I actually started when I was a tournament director of the Professional Walleye Trail, where I started writing about techniques, that all of a sudden I'm seeing these techniques going well. Bob Prop Sr. was doing this back in 1978 on Lake Oahe. The Oahe rig, and you know what they now call slow death, came from Bob Prop Sr. The Wally Diver came from Mike McClellan. He designed that bait. He built that bait for Pratco. And I didn't know um, just because it's that's who Dad hung out with. I mean, that's when I'd go have coffee and, you know, and breakfast on Saturday mornings, that's who was at the table was Tony Dean and Mike McClellan and Bob Prop Sr. and Rick Ray, and I just didn't know any different. In 1983, Tony Dean introduced Charlie to Al Linder, of in-fisherman fame and now with Linder's angling edge. He had the perfect job for 13-year-old Charlie Moore. And I met him, he's like, I got the perfect job for you. I got a place called Camp Fish in northern Minnesota, and we teach people how to fish. I'm like, really? He's like, yep, yeah, we do, and... Off I went, and I'd go the day after school got out, and I'd get home back to pier the day before school started and spend the whole summer teaching fishing, taking people fishing. The camp fish thing, you were just surrounded by really good fishermen. Um, And there were 12 guides there, and every night when we had dinner, we would talk about what are we seeing. Okay, if you're largemouth fishing, here's what's going on. If you're walleye fishing, here's what's going on. If you're musky fishing, here's what we're seeing. Um, and it was the likes of Rob Kim, who was the, the editor of Esox Angler for 15 years. It was Dan Craven, who's known as one of the best multi-species anglers in the U.S. You see him on In Fisherman all the time. You see him on Linder's Angling Edge. It was Dave Moss, who was at North American Fisherman for years. Um, all these guys that grew up teenagers, and then we went into it for a living, so... Camp Fish gave Charlie an opportunity to teach people how to fish while learning from some of the best anglers in the country. He then began to understand just how good his dad and those friends of his really were and what made these anglers so great. Understanding structure better than anyone else. Um, It wasn't so much technique um, 
and the impatience that a really good guy has. Um, it used to drive me crazy fishing with my dad. We'd pull up to a spot and we'd fish eight minutes and we're gone. And I'm like, well, we just got here. He's like, yeah, but if they're here, we would have had one by now. If they're not here. Um, and they, but they, you know, with the old flashers where they figured out how you could sit on a break and you could have an eight foot mark and a 12 foot mark on that 30 degree cone and you know you're right on the, the edge and figuring out those subtleties. And back in the day when we didn't have electronics, we didn't have chips and we didn't have a GPS, they figured out all the little nooks and crannies. So when it all came out, it was none of it was new to them. They were like, no, we knew this a long time ago. But, you know, it was the, they understood structure better than anybody in their time. And they played super close attention to the finite details. I remember being 11 and getting the lecture from Mike McClellan on, I'm out in the boat and I'm next to him and he's fishing and he's whacking him around the bluffs. I haven't caught one. He says, Charlie, you're not going the same speed as the current. And I'm like, what do you mean? He says, look at your line. It's way out here. You need to be straight up and down. Um, and I also learned from those guys, you can jig 12 months out of the year. And any species you can jig 12 months out of the year. And I got really hooked on, on that stuff of, you know, figuring out that jig bite all year long. So it was just, it was fun to watch. Uh, and then being tournament director of the PWT, where I'm videoing these guys all day long, I'm in the camera boats, and watching a Parsons and a Cavias and, and how they figure bites out or a gopher on. Didn't matter where you went. Somebody figured out one little niche, one little detail nobody else did, and that won a tournament. So it was a cool way to grow up. It wasn't only a cool way to grow up, though. This was a lifestyle that many kids would dream about. A fishing and hunting guide for a dad who let Charlie learn for himself how to get around the great outdoors. Yeah, I was pretty fortunate. Dad had a, my dad guided fishing all year and then guided duck hunting. Not pheasant, not goose, duck hunting down at Joe Creek. And he had a 16-foot lund with a 25-horse tiller, and at 12, he'd back that boat in for me, and I could take off and fish the river all day. Had a flasher on it, um, you know, the old-time flashers, the brown box and the green box. Um, and he really never, you know, gave me anything, just said go. Um, hit more than one sandbar uh, my first year. Um, you know, so that, it was, a lot of it was, you know, Dad didn't give me a whole lot. He said, you know, you're old enough, just go. It wasn't long before Louie entrusted his son with a paying client. Charlie finally had a chance to become a fishing guide at age 13. And it was uh, Virgil Ward from uh, Championship Fishing with Virgil Ward. I took him out on Lake Oahe at age 13. Um, and he came up. Dad was busy. She said, do you want to take this guy fishing? Yep. And it was Virgil Ward. And we fished the first day, and then we filmed the next two. Um, that was my first true paid trip. And I was 13 years old. And I knew who Virgil Ward was because that was the only TV show on then, Championship Fishing with Virgil Ward. Um, and then at 14, I started guiding every day uh, at Camp Fish, every single day. I think when he got in the boat... Uh, and Dad gave me, at the time, it was a Taiyi 4.9, which was as big as boats got back then. And I think when he got in the boat with his 13-year-old, he kind of looked at me like, what is going on? And Dad just backed us in, and off we went. And 
She's like, your dad's not coming? Nope, dad's not coming. And we went out and we had a great day. And he said, can we film tomorrow and the next day? Sure. And I couldn't keep him off the white bass. You'd get a white bass and you couldn't get him to stop fishing white bass. But uh, we actually filmed two shows in two days for his show. Um, so, yeah, that was really my first guide trip. Imagine having your first guide trip be a made-for-TV opportunity with one of the only fishing shows on the market. A bit of foreshadowing, I guess, for Charlie's career path. But he had a lot of great guide trips as a young man. His favorite didn't even involve catching fish. When I was, man, 18, 19 years old, um, I had the biggest tiller that was made, a 90-horsepower tiller, on a 17, 18-foot Lund uh, Pro Angler. And it was the newest, latest, greatest, and I was on Lake Oahe guiding. And I had a gentleman we put on in the morning at Okaboji. We went out flat call. We went all up Cheyenne flat call. And the wind came up while we were there. And not bad, you know, like probably 30-mile-an-hour wind. And we start coming out of the Cheyenne, and he sees the white caps. And he says, what are we going to do? I said, oh, we'll be fine. We're going with them. You know, it's just going to take a little longer than getting here. And he yelled, stop. And I said, he goes, I, he goes, I'm not too sure about this. Where's a life jacket? And I said, well, if you want to put one on, there's one here. I said, but they're like three or four footers. We're going to be fine. It's just going to, you know, we're only going to go 10 miles an hour the rest of the way. We came around out of Cheyenne and we hit the first wave and it was like a five footer. And I came off of this at an angle, so the boat really tilted kind of funny. And then I gunned the motor to kick the nose up, and he slid out of his chair like he was in a dentist office and fainted. For the next 45 minutes, he would wake up, he'd look up, faint. Wake up, look up, faint. All the way back to Okaboji Creek. <laughs> and I bet he fainted 30 times <laughs> in that fishing trip. <laughs> And he was, you know, we pulled in, <clears throat> and he finally woke up. He says, did we make it? I said, yeah, we made it. And he's like, you could, he was checking himself. He's like, I'm not even wet. I said, I know. I said, I've been doing this my whole life. You're going to be, I told you we're going to be safe. He just was convinced we were going to not make it. And he fainted. Never threw up, which I was worried about. But he, every he'd be up for 10 seconds, and he'd faint. And I kept saying, just stay on the floor. Don't even get in your chair. And he'd, and he'd go down, so... That's one of my favorite because it doesn't involve catching a fish, but um, it got pretty humorous towards the towards the end <laughs> of the of the trip. After we ate, I gave him grief. He was pretty shook up actually when we you know we got to shore. He was shaking and he was pretty scared. Um, to him, they were eight footers. Um, the reality is they were three to four. Your occasional five. The wind had been blowing four hours, so they were really sprawled out. You know, they weren't building. They were stabilized. You had a lot of room in between. So, but, yeah, I did afterwards. And then his wife really did when she found out what happened because he was a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my favorite one. Charlie went on to guide in Flagstaff, Arizona. He ran an Orvis fly shop became executive director of the National Professional Anglers Association, and then went on to work for In Fishermen, running their professional walleye trail, a job he thought he'd never leave. 
He wrote for the magazine, helped with In Fisherman TV. He did a 52-week show with the Pro Walleye Tour and many In Fisherman TV segments before starting Pro's Pointers TV. This eventually became Wired to Fish Television. Charlie had a dream for his blossoming career in the fishing industry, and it was coming to fruition. A career that others might find crazy to leave behind. But Charlie eventually did. I left the fish industry in 2010, um, and it had just gotten the best of me. I mean, a 22-minute segment on ESPN2 cost 75000 for the airtime, uh, and we ran 26 weeks. Um, and garnering the money to keep that afloat, uh, the pressures that went with that, the copious amount of time on the road, uh, the little bit of fishing that you actually got to do, because um, literally all of your fishing was filming TV, and if you ever filmed TV, it's not the same as going fishing for a day. Uh, I got tired of getting a new bait in July and say, hey, you need to do a show this year on this, and it's a spring walleye bait, and it's July. And somehow i got to go figure out how to catch three walleyes or four walleyes on this bait to make a show, and it's a lie because it's not where I would use it, how I would use it, when I would use it. Um, and I just, I really got burnt by that aspect of it. And it was just, I had this dream of what it was going to look like to host my own TV show. Um, you know, and for years, that's, that was the goal. I'll admit when I got to In Fisherman, I thought I would probably never leave. I would retire at In Fisherman. And then um, running the PWT, I was on the road about 185 to 190 days a year uh, with the 11 different events that we did throughout the country. Never take back bodies of water I got to fish um, or the places I got to see the people I got to meet. But I went through a divorce because of it. Um, things kind of fell apart, and I needed to get grounded again. And the part I would tell people who think, you know, oh, it's got to be great to do that, is I fished maybe 25, 30 days a year as a professional. Um, I used to fish tournaments to actually go fishing. Um, and I'd fish a lot of bass tournaments, uh, bass opens and different bass tournaments, so I could get away and actually fish six days straight and not worry about what I had on, not worry about my clothes, not worry about what I was fishing with. Um, when I got to that pinnacle, it was nothing that I thought it was going to be. Um, do you make good money? Yeah, you do. Um, but you find out real quick that Money and happiness are two completely different things in life. And it becomes about, are you fulfilling your life? Do you feel fulfilled with what you do? And I was completely empty. Charlie made the decision to leave the professional fishing world. He moved back to Madison, South Dakota to stay with his brother and found something that he'd been missing for a while. came to Madison, South Dakota to stay at my brother's for a while and got back into the Methodist Church, which is what I grew up in, and pretty soon I had the calling that this is what I should be doing, and for seven years I've been doing that as a pastor or so. But the good news is, as a pastor, I get Fridays and Saturdays off, so I fish every Friday uh, in open water season, and I hunt every Friday during the hunting season, and on Fridays there's nobody out. <laughs> you know, so you have lots of bodies of water to yourself, and it's... You know, it's still a passion. It's no longer a living. Um, it's probably a bigger passion now than when I was, you know, when I called it a career. 
For me, fishing is now a release. It's a getaway, it's a decompress. I very rarely take anybody with me. It's me in the boat. Um, I'll admit I pray more when I'm fishing and hunting. I feel more connected when I'm fishing and hunting. Um, I grew up with a dad who taught that though, that fishing, hunting is a gift from God. It's his greatest creations. We need to appreciate them, take care of them. And for me, it is that. I mean, the first hour is always just, okay, I'm not in the office. I don't have to go see people in the hospital. And you get that all out. And then it's just relaxation of the ducks, the geese, the wildlife you see, the fish that you catch. It's just a really good solace for me to get out and do those things. And the cool part is now if I'm, you know, if I'm fishing a shoreline pitching a four-inch power minnow for walleyes and I catch a white bass, I grab my seven weight. And I school the white, you know, the, the school white bass, I absolutely pummel them until I can't catch another one. And I'll put the fly rod down and go back to walleye fishing. And when you're doing it for a living, you don't have that option. You know, if you run into a school of crappie that's unbelievable and you're trying to do a walleye show, you keep going. You don't sit there and enjoy that school of crappie. So I don't miss 90% of it. I'll admit I miss the new boats every year, the newest, latest, greatest equipment. Um, that's pretty selfish, but I was testing spot lock in 2008, 2009. It came out two years ago. I had that trolling motor and was helping on design. Uh, there's a boat called the Predator Series for the Lund that I designed the whole interior of that boat for the multi-species guy and I miss some of that stuff but now that I'm not doing it that way I appreciate fishing way more than I used to. It became a job and now it's back to what it's supposed to be. Fun. <laughs> Just fun. Yeah so glad to be back in the fun world of fishing. Charlie went from pro to pastor. Finding out what was really important to him was just a part of his journey just goes to show that we can't make assumptions or jump to conclusions about people we come to meet on or off the water. Even though there are parts of this industry that Charlie misses a lot, he remembers fondly some of his accomplishments as a pro. Some of these behind-the-scenes acts that may not have defined his career, but the personal accomplishments make him really proud. Even after 30-some years, I think it's really cool to say Al Linder is one of my dearest friends in the world. Talk to him every week. Um, he was just down here a couple weeks ago and spoke at my church. Um, uh, the part of me that, that I am proud of that people don't know, um, there's a lot of fly fishing stuff that I was very innovative in. Uh, I wrote my first carp fishing article in 1984 at 14. Uh, I wrote my first fly fishing for walleye article in 1987. I had a huge spread in, in fishermen in 2000 on carp. I had some of the original carp patterns that were sold in Cabela's and Bass Pro. Um, they lasted three or four years in the early 90s, and it just never took off. Um, so it's interesting to see so many patterns come out that I had one I called the CC, one that I called the CC Supreme, 
CC was Charlie Carp candy. Um, and to see how those have been tweaked, you know, so there was a lot of edges. I designed fly rods for Orvis uh, for strict purpose of warm water species, not cold water species with a fly rod. I helped in reel design, helped in line design. Um, and those are the things that people don't know that you do. Why do you think that the stereotype for fly fishing still exists in that people believe it's only a cold water fishing technique? Because people don't think you can fly fish from a boat. They see it as a shoreline, shore fishing activity, and you become so much more mobile in a boat. And I think that's you know the biggest reason why is people see it as something you're stuck on a shoreline with. And it just hasn't really caught on because of that stigmatism that they still see a guy standing in a creek with waders on and a, a river runs through it. I mean, that's what they see. I'll never forget sitting down with Al in 1987 when I did the first walleye piece. He's like, man, you're really, you're pushing it. And the picture is me in a, you know, on shore releasing a walleye. And he goes, I really wish you'd have shot that out of a boat. Didn't think about it. Because there's times you do fly fish for walleyes at shore on the river and pier because you don't have to be in a boat. So why go through the hassle of putting in a boat and when you can throw on waders and catch as many walleyes from shore, especially in the spring? Um, I just think it's too far out of the imagination to, to see people in the front of a boat with a fly rod still. I caught a lot of grief in the years around on the PWT because there were seven fly rods in my boat. It was a 20-foot lund wrapped, you know, professional walleye trail, and everywhere I went, I fly fish for carp. Um, and I mean from Fort Peck to Buffalo, New York, to Cumberland, Kentucky, Bull Shoals, Arkansas, and everywhere in between. Um, I fly fish for carp in every single body of water we went to. Um, and people say, this doesn't make any sense. You got a $60,000 boat and you're catching carp. You know, it's like, well, it's what you enjoy, you know. Um, and that's when I really started putting pieces together of activity levels of carp, what it meant, what a fly I should use because of that. Um, and that's, I did a, a show in, in about 2003 that was, in Fishman was always three segments, eight minutes a piece, and they made it a 16 minute segment, the fly fishing one, um, just because of what I went through of things I discovered with activity levels what that meant they were feeding on, when to cast, when not to cast, how to cow to approach them, when do you use a weighted fly, when do you not use a weighted fly, um, things like that. So I just think, it, you know, I think, buddy, you, it's still a shoreline deal to people. The amazing common carp stole Charlie's passion and attention as an angler. As one of the early adopters and early innovators in that industry, you would think his passion for fishing that species would have waned over the years. Instead, given the option to only fish one area for one species, the common carp still reigns supreme. I'm probably going to go to Republic Reservoir in Kansas, um, and I'm going to chase carp on fly rod because they have huge mirrors. Um, it's one of the few places I've been where every second fish, is, every other fish is a mirror. 
a mirror carp, you have your common carp that, that most people know that have these giant scales on them. A mirror carp, a true mirror carp is leathered like an eel pout or catfish. And there might be one or two or three scales mixed in there, but uh, they're a true common carp. It's a genetic form, you know, in, you know, formality that messes up um, and makes them a mirror. Uh, but for some reason, that lake has an unbelievable number of mirror carp. Uh, and it's a reservoir like Lake Oahe. It's just about a sixteenth the size. And the, the number of 15 to 20 pound mirrors was insane. I know that sounds weird that I'm talking about carp fishing. It's one thing I'd go do, but I'll admit I'll never go to the Great Lakes fishing again, probably. Uh, I got to ask yesterday, how many times have you been to Lake Erie? Probably 40. Would you go back? No, because the waves get gigantic. And you, go, you can go there and sit for seven days and fish for one because it's such a huge body of water. But, you know, that place in Kansas, it was pretty cool. It was unique. The other one, I'd, if I had to pick between two, it would be chasing long-nosed gar on bull shoals on a fly rod. Um, I caught gar up to 55 inches long on fly rod uh, in bull shoals, so it was really cool. So, Charlie Moore, pro to pastor, son of a legendary fishing guide, proud father, and all-around angler. What do you want the next generation to know about you? What wisdom can you pass on? That I learned to fish for the fun of it. That I learned to fish for the pure enjoyment of being outdoors and appreciating the incredible gifts that God gave us in Genesis when he created fish for the sea and the water and the birds. Um, there's nothing are copacetic to the mind than being in the outdoors where you don't hear cars, you don't hear noises, except blackbirds or if you're in pure metal arcs. <laughs> um, but to, you know, I hope that they figure out what it truly means to be an outdoorsman. It doesn't mean you have to shoot a limit of pheasants every time. It doesn't mean you have to get a limit of ducks. It doesn't mean you have to catch a limit of walleyes or whatever you're doing that you truly get out just to get away and enjoy these creations by God. That's what I hope. The Fisherman's Prayer, I pray that I may live to fish until my dying day. And when it comes to my last cast, I then most humbly pray, when the Lord's great landing net in peacefully asleep, that in his mercy I be judged big enough to keep. Thank you, Charlie Moore, for believing in the power of fish stories. The archive would not be complete without your voice. Hopefully there are many more to come. Stick around for a bonus story from Charlie after these credits. He'll be glad you did. If you want to leave a legacy or preserve the legacies of anglers that you care about, go to fishstories.org today and learn how to submit a story of your own. Give us a call or email if you need some help getting it done. 
We have our first ever live show coming up on August 9th in Rapid City, South Dakota. I'm so pumped. Thanks to Main Street Square for believing that every fish story deserves to be told and for supporting anglers and their voices. The festivities begin at 6 p.m. that Thursday night, so bring a chair and a great fishing story to share. Hope to see you there. <laughs> Dang, that was good. If you appreciate what we're doing at Fish Stories, you need to recruit a true fan or two. It's less than a new swim bait each month and helps to preserve these fishing voices and stories for future generations. Thanks for doing it. And thanks for listening to the podcast. Until next time, don't forget to stay awesome. Fishing buddy. Did you have any um, really good tournament days on the water? You know, uh, yeah, I did. I succeeded way better in bass tournaments than I did in walleye tournaments, which is unique because I grew up as a walleye fisherman, and I ran the professional walleye trail. And my first uh, bass event that I won, I was the tournament director of the professional walleye trail. Um, and then I also lost one that was brutal. Um, How did that go down? Uh, you know, there was two events a year in Minnesota that were pro tournaments, and you had a observer. It was strictly you. Uh, Two-day event. Um, I had fished it multiple times. It always took about a 3, 3.2, 3.3-pound average to win. It was a chain of nine lakes. Uh, it was televised by Ron Shera's show. And, and I knew all the camera guys really well. Um, and they would always ask prior to see who they're going to fish with the first day. And in pre-fishing, I had this incredible way of catching a whole bunch of two-pounders, and I couldn't find anything bigger. And I went into a little lake I'd been by a hundred times, and it took a half an hour to get in there because of all this no-wake zone. I'm like, man, that's burning a lot of fishing time. And I was cruising across the lake, and, and all of a sudden I went across a weed bed out in the middle of nowhere, and I turned around. I'm like, huh, and it was maybe 70 yards long and 20 yards wide. And I pitched a, a jig and a plastic in and whacked a 20-incher, weighed 5-1, first cast. I'm like, whoa. Third cast, caught one that was 4-9, packed up, left. And I, uh, that was the day before the tournament. The camera guy comes, he says, what do you think? He says, I think I can win. I said, I think I can have a four-pound average. He's like, what? I'm like, yeah. Next morning, we go. I let all the boats fly. Takes me about 40 minutes to get into the spot. I made 11 casts and had five fish for 22 pounds and was in the lead by 11. And the rest of the day, I just went out where everybody else was and just dinked around. Two-day tournament, 60,000 to win. Slept like a baby because um, I fished maybe 20 feet of the weed bed total. Camera guy hops in, off we go. We go through this long channel. I come around, and there's this giant machine out in the middle of the lake. And, my, you know, I feel like I'm going to throw up. And I fly up to him. I said, what are you doing? And it's the Lake Association weed cutter. And a skier had complained the day before about the weeds in the middle, and they mowed the whole weed bed down. And it was gone. And I mean gone. It was all sitting on the back of this and I said, you understand, there's a giant bass tournament going, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. He says, how are you doing? I said, well, I was in the lead. 
You just mowed my spot down. And we left at 7 a.m. Well, I got out here at 6. I just wanted to get done before people got out. And I caught 10 pounds and lost by 4 ounces. (laughs) Got second. (laughs) I didn't laugh about it then. Um, I mean, what do you do? It's... I never would have thought of that happening. And I had two pound average. I knew everything else I had was two pounds and I caught 10 pounds, three ounces on day two. I mean, and I told the camera guys, what do you know? I'm like, I'm gonna go catch 10 pounds and that's probably gonna be it. And I caught 10 pounds, three ounces. And I lost by four ounces. You know, so you have those stories too. Are you sure it was a skier that called that in, or maybe maybe it was? <laughs> did you share that. any secrets? I, I never, I never thought that he's winning. Cut it out. Uh, I don't think anybody knew where I was. I really don't because I was in there for such a short amount of time. It was a little lake. It was maybe five hundred yards long. It just wasn't meant to be. The only and I, it's funny because I've never won a tournament when I went into it thinking I got it. It was always the tournaments where I wasn't quite sure and I had a few things left to figure out that by the end of day one, I had it figured out. And day two was your biggest bag. Um, And I've won a few walleye tournaments over the years too, but I've never had one that was so decapitating as that one is how I would put it. It It was absolutely brutal.